We'll be reading from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone <clears throat> on, the, on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anglehearts and Matt and Elizabeth do so much to serve our church behind the scenes and just so grateful for both of you. You know, setting the right expectations is a very important part of life. That I think as you look out into the future of things and you anticipate them coming, good, bad, or otherwise, that if you have false expectations, that they ultimately lead to disillusionment and disappointment. That the title of today's sermon, you still remember, Great Expectations, it takes you back maybe to high school literature class and Charles Dickens and his story about a guy named Pip who wants so desperately to become a middle-class English gentleman because he thinks that's where life really is, only to find out it's empty. It's all a fraud. Perhaps yesterday at 4.30, you had some expectations, as I did, and you feel a bit disillusioned and disappointed. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that is commendable. That is commendable. I'm grateful for you. <clears throat> Today we see that her swirling around Jesus, that there's all kinds of expectations, but very few of them have him right. And I hope today that we see Jesus for who he is, gloriously different, unlike other earthly figures 
Thank God. So speaking of expectations, just go over a bit of a schedule for you that we've been in Luke for some time. In fact, I did the servant songs at Advent in 2019. So we've been in it a while, but I promise you now here, now as we go in, we can think of ourselves as being on the march to Easter, that this is the last week of Jesus's life. So we'll take it on through April to see the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But the disproportionate impact of the last week of his life is where we're gonna be for the upcoming, what would that be, 10 or 12 weeks. So by way of orientation, what is Luke? What was just read to us? It's one of four biographies that God preserves for us on the life of Jesus. The others being Matthew, Mark, and John. And what they're doing is the biographers are saying this is the impression that Jesus made on his followers. This is who we knew him to be. I just want to read the opening of Luke's gospel. If you have a physical Bible, you can turn back to the beginning or just listen. That's fine too. Luke writes this, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that they have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, I actually have a great deal of sympathy with, I guess, what we'd call philosophical skepticism. That you look out of the world, say, people believe all kinds of weird things, unsubstantiated things, get in all kinds of weird theories. It is really good to test the things that you believe in. It's really good to examine them. And what I often find is people say, well, that Jesus stuff, I mean, what what evidence do we have? You know, it's just uh, you pastors trying to conjure things up and take people's money. Say, time out. What do you think of this? What do you think of Luke's introduction? Say, I've taken careful account of this figure, Jesus. I've talked to the eyewitnesses, and I'm taking the burden to write this account so that you may be sure of who he is because it is of utmost consequence. Now, you can do what Lewis, C.S. Lewis, did for many years and be guilty of chronological snobbery, something like this. Well, Luke lived a long time ago. He was really confused. I'm much more sophisticated. Or you can pretend that these four biographies don't exist and you just go through life as we are. Or we can say, take him at his word as a first century physician who said, this is Jesus who I know him. God chose me to preserve this account for you. Take it very seriously because it is the only thing, really, that is of ultimate significance. So Luke's gospel, and as we've been making our way through, there are a number of themes. I'll highlight two, and you'll see how they flow in today. Two key themes that uh, as we've gone through 19 chapters, the first is this. The unexpected reversal of who's in right relationship with God. That many times in Luke's gospel, Jesus says things like this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what's he driving at here? So you have an idea. We both have an idea. Say, what kind of person is a respectable citizen? Uh, They're put together. They have nice manners. They have good church attendance. They're not foul-mouthed. Um, They've got their act together, therefore they must be right with God. 
And others who don't have their act together, who aren't among us, well, you know, they're on the outs. What Jesus is saying, actually, is those of us who want to project strength in this life, to say, I've got it all together. I do all the right things. My family's together. I don't swear. I come to church. I'm okay with God. He says, you're missing it. The person who actually has favor with God is the person who says, I need help. That I see in my own heart, actually, I'm a selfish guy. That given the opportunity, I clench my fist at God and I ply through and to be honest, you know, to, to, to seek pleasure and to indulge and to just spend my 70 or 80 years banqueting, actually, that's deep down, there's a lot in that I want to do. And when God opens our eyes to say, actually, I need his help, that I'm on the wrong side of his moral economy, if you will. So you see what Jesus is saying, that everyone, we, reversal of expectations, that a person who projects strength is actually on the outside, but the person who sees his or her need and casts themselves at the feet of Jesus will be raised up and not be put to shame. The reversal of expectations of what God wants, not our strength, but actually our seeing our need. Secondly, gloriously, repeatedly in Luke, unexpected person after unexpected person receives Jesus and follows him. You say, what's it all about? I mean, I hear you evangelicals. You know, I know that term is fraught with big E, lowercase e, voting block. The people, you people who take the Bible seriously and talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, what does that mean? It goes right back here that when we see Jesus, we receive him into our lives, that he becomes the the governing impulse of all that we do. And all that we do is about following him. Best example, I think, of when we were back in August, Zacchaeus, of both of these themes. Zacchaeus was the guy you thought there's no way that guy ever is going to become a follower of Jesus. He's a dreaded tax collector. He's a crook, even in a, in a, in a job where there's all crooks. I mean, he's the worst crook. He oversees all the crooks. Uh, that little guy, he'll, ne- he'll never be a follower of Jesus. Dis- dismiss him. Goes up the tree. Jesus says, Zacchaeus... I want you to follow me. You're my guy. You follow me. And what are we told? Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy and follows him. If you hear nothing else I say, that what's this all about is that God put forth Jesus into history, that anyone who sees their need can receive him today, that your life can then be, you can be a follower of Jesus, that our mission here, you see it out on the medallion there, it's following Christ together. That summarizes what we're about, that we are disciples, followers of Jesus. Who thought that up? Shaw, the elders? No. Jesus, will you come to him today? Receive him and follow him? So the unexpected reversal of who's really right with God. Not external formalities, but about the heart. What does God really want? Us to see Jesus for who he is, receive him, and follow him. Now, what about this passage that we've come to today? All four gospel accounts, all four biographies deliver this, so it is of significance. Uh, You know, when it's in there four times, you're like, this must have been a monumental moment, and of course it is. Why is that? Because Jesus, way back in chapter 9, that anyone studying the whole of Luke's gospel knows 9 and verse 51 is a crucial pivot verse. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is, on the cross and into glory, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem, that there's a pivot right in the middle of Luke's gospel to say, okay, he's gathering disciples, he's talking about what it means to follow him, and then there's this resolution to go into Jerusalem, and that's going to be really the, the climactic event. And of course, 19 and verse 28, we see the fulfillment of that movement as Jesus is on the outskirts of Jerusalem and will enter Jerusalem in what is called the triumphal entry. Now, here's where we get to the matter of expectations. So, bold heading one, two bold headings today. Bold heading one is this. The crowds and their leaders that is in this mass of people, they have all kinds of different and, shall I say, false expectations of Jesus moving into Jerusalem. So, what do they do? Well, many of them, they're taking off their cloaks and they're throwing their cloaks down on the ground that others are shouting. Uh, Psalm 118 and verse 25 that uh, you'll notice there in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, that they're shouting these things because they do know Jesus to be the Messiah. They say, here he comes, this long-anticipated figure. Uh, he's in our midst, that he's the one we've been waiting for, and they're doing all the right things to honor this king. But I think there's something hovering over the experience, and it's there in verse 37. Let's see what you think of this that they're praising God in a loud voice because of all the mighty works they'd seen. So you're asking the question, do they see Jesus really? In other words, do they really like him for what he's come to do for people? That is, uh, heal their physical ailments, uh, bring up the lowly uh, in this life alone? Are they seeing him for who he really is? Nevertheless, that they expect this king He's coming into Jerusalem. What do they expect him to do? They expect him to occupy a throne. They expect him to throw out the Romans and to consolidate his territory. They expect an earthly territorial king to assume his spot. He's going to be like all the other territorial kings, only a lot better. That he's going to be playing the same type of game, but just do the game a lot better. That's their expectation. Others in the crowd, you have a verse 39, and some of the Pharisees, the technical experts of the Old Testament, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to knock it off. There's debate as to what they're doing here. I think two, they could have two expectations. On the one hand, they say they could be afraid of the Romans. So you know Rome's got a rule, and the rule is Caesar is king. That if we don't want to stir up a lot of trouble here in our little province of Judea, you can't be declaring this unimpressive Jewish carpenter to be the king. Jesus, tell him to knock it off. On the other hand, their expectations are probably something like this guy's an imposter. That he's acting blasphemously. I mean, after all, Jesus, up to this point, he's kind of toned it down. He says, not yet, fellas, not yet, fellas. Now they're saying, you know, here comes the king, and he's saying, it's true, even the stones will cry out. Jesus is not dampening their fervor, so what do they say? They say, well, this guy's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be the Christ. That they envision an uprising. They envision a heretical movement. So once again, some in the crowd they see another earthly territorial king who's going to play the same game that's been played for centuries before and centuries since, that he's just going to push out the bad guys. He's going to sit on his throne. They see a throne. They see a sword. Others see an uprising, Rome coming in. But what does Jesus see? Jesus sees the cross. He's not come to move militarily. He's not come to create a kind of religious faction. 
He's come for something more cosmic. It's not that their expectations were too high. In fact, they were too low. And in three vignettes, bold heading number two, Jesus alters what our perception of kingship is and what it means to lead for that matter. You say, well, practically, what does it mean for Christ followers to lead in today's world? How does he adjust our expectations? What does he do and how are they counterintuitive? So how does Jesus alter our expectations? Picture number one, his entrance. Now, I've never been to an entrance of a dignitary, but you can figure, you say, well, you know when a president or a presidential candidate comes to Northeast Ohio, what that means, that we have new traffic patterns, there's often lots of different cars, there's a lot of security, the cars tend to be nice, um, that the entry of a dignitary are always carefully choreographed. That I've been reading Mary Beard's account of Pompey the Great, as he was known in his own time, Pompey the Butcher. That back in the 60s BC, Pompey consolidates what would become the eastern part of the Roman Empire. He takes all the lands, beats out the Greeks and the Parthians, and he carefully choreographs his re-entry into Rome. And what Pompey wanted, he said he took on a cloak and he wanted everybody to think, no doubt that this was false, but he said, I want everybody to think that that's Alexander the Great's cloak. Why? Because Alexander conquered the world and I've conquered the world. Some in the entourage were carrying little balls that symbolized the globe to say Pompey's taken over the whole world. There were inscriptions that say Pompey's conquered it all. In other words, Pompey choreographs his entrance into Rome to say, I am a powerful man, I've taken over the world, everyone will submit, you do what I say, you get in my way, off with your head. A projection of strength. How does our king come in? You gotta go up on the hill, boys. There's a little farm up there. And there's a donkey that's never been ridden upon, a colt. I need you to untie that and bring him down. And they hoist him up on that colt. And the most truculent of all animals, he makes his way into Jerusalem. Fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which says, you Israelites, you follower of the true God, your king's going to come. You ready for this? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Other translations, translations, lowly or gentle. Think of the difference a projection of strength, of territorial maneuvering, a king like other kings who does it a little bit better, or our Jesus who comes in humility. Why does he come in humility? Because he's after our hearts. He says that the problem's way more the problem of territory. The problem is the sinfulness in my own heart. And God sends Jesus into history to show, look at how different that he is, humble and riding on a donkey. And I ask you, I just ask you, say, wouldn't, what, what do you think? I, I think this figure not only doesn't exist, but is unelectable. But you say, what, what if in our political scene there was some Christ follower who, who modeled his leadership on humility? I mean, how staggered would you be if a national figure in any political party ever said something like this, I'm sorry I was wrong, I'm seeking forgiveness. Or I could be wrong about this. This is what I think the best thing to do is, but I could be wrong. That figure, I'm convinced, does not exist or is, not unelect- is, is unelectable. And yet we're so drawn to Jesus. 
Again, please, no platitudes from anyone in our congregation. Say, is Jesus that different? Is there anything magnetic about him? He comes humble and gentle. Can you see him? Are you drawn to him? Second thing he does, verse 41. He comes into the city on this donkey, prearranged, choreographed, but for a different reason than, say, Pompeii. Now he does something that any leader really ought never do. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, I'm told from the Greek grammarians that this word weep is not like, uh, you know, when Lord Patton saw the Union Jack come down over Hong Kong in 1997 and there was a single tear. No, not that. But rather, he really wept, that he was visibly shaken, that, that the, t- the tears flowed, that Jesus comes in and sees Jer- Jerusalem and he just cries. So once again, you say, how does that look? You say, there's the guy we're following, and he's up there weeping. Usually a bad idea. Does Jesus care? No. Why is he weeping? He's weeping over the sinfulness of humanity. He's weeping over our brokenness. He knows all the news headlines as we watch, and he is just saying, why why won't they come to me, the author of peace? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you're not willing. The prince of peace is there, the one who it's all about, the, the king of kings, and the people repeatedly, the vast majority of people throughout history and in today's world say, no thanks, we're doing fine without him. And look at what we've got. That Jesus mourns our brokenness and our rebellion. The best way that I can put this, and I'm not quite there yet as a parent, but I've talked to enough, I think it would be something like this, that when you have an adult child, I don't know, 24 or something, and you see you've raised them, you love them. But the child doesn't know the love of a parent like the parent does. It's different. They, they can feel an alley, but you know... And you see your 24-year-old son or daughter, and they're making a bad decision. And you say, they're, they're an adult. What a, I can't control them. And what you have left is to cry. And that's our king. Will you come to the Prince of Peace? Or are we going to plow through? Maybe you're there today, and you think, well, yeah, the world's really messed up. Has anybody done anything about it? Does anybody care? Well, Jesus cares. May we not throw him out. And practically for us, and I always preach to myself before I ever preach to any of you, okay? I tend to get mad at people who don't get it. I get mad at the figures, the knuckleheads, wherever, here, there, and everywhere. But what Jesus here primarily is concerned and loves them. You go to a game, the next year, Browns game, 70,000. You ever wonder, you say, how many of these know Jesus? How many of these are lost and broken and living empty lives, have no peace? Am I mad at them? Do I care about them? What, what, if I'm a Christ follower, what would Jesus Oh, people come to the Prince of Peace, right? You go to a graduation maybe a few weeks ago, Bowling Green, there's thousands of them there. How many of them know Jesus? 
You see a person who even is openly against Jesus and you feel the anger stir up. But maybe for the wrong reasons, the point I'm trying to make is for me, may I learn to care for lost people rather than to become angry with them. Now, sadly, what happens next, you'll read down. Jesus weeps over the city, verse 42, echoing chapter 13. Would that you, even you, had known what makes for peace, that is, what? Receiving Jesus. But it's hidden from your eyes, then 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not recognize Jesus. So what happens here? Now, some read this and say, well, that's, that's exactly the reason why I could never get on board with the God of the Bible because he demands these things from us, and the second we don't do it, in comes the wrath, and everybody's wiped out. Say, what if we look at it a bit differently, that Jesus comes plainly for everyone to see, that God says, these are my terms for peace, that people say, we don't want that, we want territorial fighting. What's happening here, I think, is God saying, okay, it's Romans 1, he's handing us over. You don't want Jesus, I'll leave you to yourselves. And what happens when we're left to ourselves? Not good. And the judgment comes in in a very real way. Historically, in the year 70, right, we all know Jerusalem is wiped out. Josephus, who's an eyewitness testimony to this, he says Jerusalem was left by the Romans as if no one in the future will think anyone had ever lived in this city. The judgment came. The serious consequences of rejecting the Prince of Peace. Here's Jesus. Will you receive him? Will you accept God's terms? I pray we do. You say, no, I'll do it alone. I actually kind of like just navigating it. Okay, we're handed over to ourselves, right? We're hand- Okay, you do it. So the problem actually becomes, counterintuitively, not the lack of human free will, but too much of it. You guys do it your way. Okay. And the judgment comes. So point one, how does Jesus come? Humble, gentle, that all might see. Because he's in the heart business. He's in the people business. He weeps over sinfulness. The last thing Jesus does, again, how's this? For PR, you ride in on the donkey, you cry, now what are you going to do if you lead well? You get really angry, right? Take a look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they couldn't do anything more or less because of mutually assured destruction. What does Jesus do? He walks into the temple, and here's what's going on. There's all kinds of money changers there and people selling animals. Nothing wrong with that in itself, that this is Passover. So you have in diaspora Judaism, Jews from all over the Mediterranean world pouring into Jerusalem that you're supposed to come to this annual feast. And what you needed to do was purchase animals who are blemish-free to go into the temple to do your sacrifices. You also needed money changers to take your foreign currency and convert it into the shekel to pay the temple tax dictated by Exodus 30. So the money changers are there for a good reason. What's the problem? That they're charging huge fees. Then instead of helping these pilgrims come to God in the right way, they put up an obstacle to come to God and start practicing extortion. They say Jesus gets angry. 
He gets angry at our iniquity and the, the, the mess of this world. You know, there are some things, again, you look at a passage like this, say, well, Jesus was perfect. I've heard that bit in the Bible where he gets really mad at the temple and he flips over the tables and he you know, drives the people out. What about that? Say this, friends, from the perfect man is righteous anger. Again, I, we talk about real things in this church. What do you think about the pedophilia in our country? What do you think about trafficking? Do you think there's a place for righteous anger among the perfect God to see his other creatures being treated that way? In other words, Jesus comes in and says, this kind of misrepresentation of true worship, this looking out for yourselves and being a block to God, this is, this does, this is not a part of my kingdom. This does not work here. I'm different that he wants others to be blessed by their worship, not to be prevented in this kind of misrepresentative way. So here's the point, expectations. Is our expectation of Jesus that we come to him? He's like the U.S. presidents, only he's a little bit better U.S. president. He's like all the great figures of history, he just does it by pulling a few extra levers. Say no, what we see in Jesus is someone categorically different. Humble who enters in and says, will you give me your life? I've come for you so you can be right with God and have a purpose. Will you receive him? That he weeps over our sin. He's angered by a human rebellion, as all of us, I know, from time to time are. So, Christian, may you have a renewed confidence that this Jesus is special, that you're following him to great purpose. He's unlike others. And again, if you're not a Christian here today, you've not put your life into Jesus' hands or received him, as I said, maybe today, this election year, you're thinking, oh my goodness, here we go. What are we gonna do? Say, I've got someone for you. The Lord Jesus is your king. Will you receive him and live for him? I'll pray, and then the gentleman will come up um, as I'm praying. Loving and gracious Father, help us not to think too low of Jesus to say, well, really what all this is about is getting the right legislation through Washington. Say how low of a view that would be of what Jesus came to do, which is to cure the hearts, to go right into the heart of every man and woman. That are we clamoring about the wrong things rather to see what he's about, that he's about our souls, that he would look upon our society and say, oh, would others come and receive the Prince of Peace? Help us to have that same heart, Lord, a heart of humility, a heart of care, a heart about sensing your passion for justice in the right things, the one day, the reckoning of all things that we see a glimpse of here in the temple. And help us with a renewed strength to follow this King Jesus all the days of our lives. So we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen.